0: Welcome to season three of Beyond Philanthropy: Systemic Change.
1: Hello, and welcome back to Beyond Philanthropy. I'm Valerie. I'm here with Monique. Hello, I'm so excited, guys. <laughs> and we've got uh, one of one of our our biggest fangirl guests today. Uh, so I'm going to actually let Monique uh, do the introduction because this was her like top wish list uh, guest for this season so we're, we're really excited so Monique who are we talking to today oh we
0: are talking to the one and the only Edgar Villanueva the author of decolonizing wealth the founder of the decolonizing wealth project um, I'm so excited I'm not even sure I'm going to be able to really do this podcast today but I'm excited <laughs> I'm wearing my decolonizer shirt thank you Edgar for blessing us with your presence on this show
2: thank you it's a joy to be here
0: we were we were just recently in Nola for a conference and people were asking us about our podcast. And we're like, who you have on next? Because our last guest was Vule and we're like, oh, well, next, it's a, it's a surprise. I'm like, no, it's not a surprise. I can't hold it. It's egg. And they're like, whoa, you guys are doing it. You got egg <laughs> and Boo? Like you, I'm like, yeah, we're doing it. We're doing it. Um, awesome. But it is amazing to have you on. And um, you're celebrating your fifth year of a decolonizing mm-hmm. wealth project. Like, congratulations. Tell everyone who, does, I don't know if you, everyone should know, but for those who don't know, can you give a little bit of background on the project and how it got started?
2: Yeah, happy to. Um, So when I put my book out in 2018, at the time I was working at a foundation and really enjoying my job. And I um, had scheduled a few book events after, because kind of what you do when you put a book out. And what really happened after that is that my book tour never ended. I, I was, you know, I'm in LA at the moment. I signed was signing books last night. It felt like this book tour has been five years long. Um, And while I was going around the country on this book tour, especially uh, in 2019, where we were just out there, just everywhere, um, I began to see just a, a growing demand for more. And what folks were asking for were more support, tools, resources to operationalize the big ideas in the book. And so we put out a journal to accompany the book. We designed a workshop. And it just got to a place where my my job was so generous to kind of lend me out uh, as a loaned executive for a year to do the thing. And then it got to the point where I was like, I can't do both. I can't be out here and still be right. president right. of the foundation. So I launched a project um, to really focus on organizing and disrupting uh, in the sector of philanthropy. And then what came about? Um, so, I guess the short story is, I didn't have a business plan to launch an organization. <laughs> <laughs> it's been very, very organic and responding to opportunities and needs. And what also happened in those early days is, um, I a lot of people with wealth began coming to me saying, advise me on where to put this money. I want to move money and, you know, with a lens of racial justice. Um, or people were saying, you know, we want to give you the money. We trust you to move this money. Mm-hmm. And so I realized, well, I'm actually in the room every single day with donors, millionaires, folks with resources who care and are open to the ideas that we're pushing out into the world. Why not create a mechanism right there in the moment to get the resources to redistribute? So we launched our fund, Liberated Capital, which has become a big part of our organizational um you know, mission and work to model kind of a laboratory of a very different type of fund to uh, deploy resources. So it's been quite a journey. And I'm so thankful to everyone who's been, you know, along uh, this ride with us, we are celebrating five years, we're putting out a report by the end of the year to just codify the impact that we've been able to to have um, as an organization. And it's just blowing my mind. It's, it's, it's so awesome. So yeah, thank you.
1: So I feel like yeah. you were really at the forefront of the decolonizing movement, <laughs> um, maybe even bringing the word decolonizing into the general lexicon. So for folks who maybe aren't familiar with the book or aren't familiar with the term, can you just talk a little bit about like what decolonizing is and and maybe how to operationalize it in a very general sense, obviously not for, you know, a very specific situation,
2: Sure. Um, I will not take credit for too much around that, but I think bringing that framework into philanthropy, we definitely can take a lot of credit for that. Um, also around the time that my book dropped, um, Black Panther came out, and I think that just helped. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> to really like get this into the public consciousness. Um, I was like, oh, I could not have timed that movie better to support our work in so many ways. <laughs> um, you know, it's it's there's a there's a a paper um uh, and where with this so we pull often this quote from that says decolonization is not a metaphor Mm -hmm. and um i say that to lay out that i I do think there are many approaches and ideas and sort of definitions of decolonization i want to pay homage to folks who have who see decolonization as a very political act right it is like it is about reinstating the sovereignty and self-determination of peoples. And, um, and it is very, very political. And um, to take away from that in any kind of way is, is offensive to some people. Um, so I stand by the definition that decolonization is not a metaphor, that it is a political act. It is about undoing uh, through policy and all types of mechanisms what has been done to colonize us all. I think that um, where I bring the sort of my spin on the definition of decolonization, especially into the space of philanthropy, um, is also what I feel like for me is a reality check. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know, I I, I don't think of decolonization as like all the white people in America need to leave. That's Mm -hmm. not realistic at this point in time, right? Our families are intertwined, our businesses, like we're all here together. And so I approach decolonization from the point of view of let's acknowledge the history of how we got here. Let's understand what colonization is, what it was, and how it continues to operate in systems and policies in a very real, violent ways that are are tangible. And let's think about how we begin a collective healing process from uh, the, the wounds of colonization. Uh, For everybody, because the fact is colonization has harmed all of us in different ways, but all of us. And so if I had to really simplify a gross simplification of decolonization, um, I think of the word healing. Mm -hmm. It's like acknowledging truth and repair and healing. um, But we have to center indigenous sovereignty and self-determination in a political way as we think about that.
0: So... 2018 is when I I launched my consulting company and I'll say your book was one of my pieces of education as I decided to step outside of just working in non profit so one thank you for that in the workbook when it came along I have that as well was also helpful when I when I think about decolonizing wealth and even the title of this episode which is decolonizing philanthropy what is it that we really need to do I mean people are saying you know what should i do with my money or here's my money you know do do the right thing with it i still feel as though there are power structures that exist outside of just the money that we're putting towards philanthropy or philanthropic pursuits what else should we be doing we're not going anywhere right or they're not going anywhere we're not going anywhere we need to come together but how do we come together and break down these barriers of power and be more equitable in in life
2: yeah it's a really good question you know, honestly, I, I kind of go back and forth sometimes about money and the other things, because especially for philanthropy, because we kind of like to move through the world sometimes as as funders and uh, folks who are, are stewards of philanthropic resources, uh, where we don't like to talk about the money for some reason. It's like, I'm like, at the end of the day, because I fundraise a lot now, I'd really just want your money. <laughs> Anything else I might get from you is great. I do want to be in a relationship. We have fantastic donors at DWP, but at the end of the day, we cannot kid ourselves that it is really about uh wanting to to move money. I do think the how of of how we're, you know, doing money beyond a transactional thing is really meaningful. And so we talk about this idea of money being medicine and the donors in our community, it is not this transactional thing where, you know, it's just about them funding us, but we actually have built a community of, 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 of folks who are committed to healing, who are committed to giving up power. Um, none of our donors dictate how we use money, where we put it, and all of that. I don't have time. I got 600 donors, and this, I'm only, I, I don't even, I've only had one donor in the history of our organization who was like, Can you put this money? Just to these causes and like these three counties, and I'm like, I don't want to lie. Like, I mean, I can act like that's what we did, but it is just too overwhelming <laughs> to track at that level. You have to. And just they should have, have
0: just done it. If that's yeah. what they well, wanted. So, yeah. how did the
1: yeah. donor react to that? Like when you said, like, I can't only put it towards these three counties.
2: They were fine. They were fine because part of that there's an opportunity for education because the reason that we call our fund Liberated Capital. Is because for two reasons. One, we are liberating nonprofits and tribes and folks that we support from the ridiculous like burden that funders have put on community to apply for funding, the weaponization of evaluation, yada, 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 doing their work under the white gaze. Um, but we also are liberating donors. We're liberating funders, right? On the other side of that table. And we're liberating them from this identity of being a donor which somehow has got has been equated to the person who controls and dominates program officer this title in foundations it's all about policing Mm -hmm. and so we're inviting them to liberate themselves from that identity and be like well who else are you because we're all donors we all give and so your other your other things you are a person who lives in a community you're a mother you're You're, you know, uh, uh, you're a PTA member or whatever. What are you other than being a donor? Can you see yourself liberated from that identity that is so locked into what really are core tenements of white supremacy that need to dominate and control? And so what we say to our donors is that we are not begging for money from you to, to fund poor black and brown communities but we are extending a lifeline into your humanity and liberation to be a part of a healing process in a community. And so when you kind of lay it out like that, they're like, oh, my God, yes, take this money and do. But it is a reparations um, reparative um, you know, framework that we operationalize at Liberated Capital, where people are giving their money and giving up their power and need to control. And all of those decisions are made by community leaders. And it just creates this beautiful opportunity for them to get something else. Because it's like, do you want that control and power and decision making? Does that make you feel good when you go to bed at night? Or do you want to be a part of something that is more spiritual and bigger and um, to be in a community where we're talking about issues and healing and just connecting? Because the money is going to do what the money's going to do out there in community. And like you can just get out of the way of that and let it happen. And we have just remarkable results of how um, the folks have been trans transformed really by allowing um, themselves to be liberated from the need to control the resources.
1: Sounds like a lot of donor education. And I mean, I feel like anytime I've, not such large scale, but small scale, pushed back on a donor and said, can't do this, can do that, or this is why I'm not gonna do that, um, like, touring. So I work for a housing organization. They want to tour apartments. And I'm like, absolutely not. That is someone's home. Like I'm not going to just let random strangers into somebody's home so you can see what a home looks like for one of our participants. Like that's weird. And they always say, oh, I totally, I, I never thought about it that way before. I totally understand. Like I've never really had bad reactions to that. So I'm like both really not surprised that you haven't had a bad reaction and also really surprised that more people don't do it, I guess. I don't know. I don't know. I feel like I am. I don't feel
0: so I'm surprised. I feel like there are people for everything. There are going to be people who understand that. And they're going to go. My question is, were there people that you might have talked to that you tried to educate that just didn't get it? Like, what was that? What was your point where you're like, "Mm, all right, I need to just move on and not just bang my head against the wall?
2: No, it's interesting. I feel, one, I want to acknowledge in this work that I have a lot of power and privilege, a a lot. And so some of the ways I cut up (laughs) (laughs) or push back um, come from a a place of having a lot of power and privilege that my platform has afforded me. And I do cut up and push back um, a lot because I do feel like in doing so, I'm creating maybe a new norm where others will be able to have a more free, experience in this work, because um, I totally acknowledge nonprofit folks who are trying to keep the lights on and, and need money and have bills to pay, you know, salaries to pay and pushing back can be very scary. Um, so I'm in a very fortunate position where I can. And I hope that my pushing back just, you know, is is helping folks treat others differently. Um, so I just want to say that because I get that a lot. Oh, my God, I couldn't say that to a funder i I get it, right. <laughs> I haven't always been able. I have run nonprofits be- back in the day, and definitely felt like I had to just do what I had to do to get the checks, right? Yeah, um, but what I will say to your question is overall, like surprisingly to me, I haven't had a lot of pushback. um mm-hmm. uh, there. I think part of it was the timing of when we launched uh, the book came out and we launched the organization. I think there was just so much like collective exhaustion from conversations around equity and nothing changing. Mm -hmm. I think that, um, you know, right around the time, right after that, we also had the murder of George Floyd. We had the pandemic. We had all these external things happening where philanthropy was like, had to do something different. And that just really accelerated our ideas and able to get out there to to like do, do all kinds of like work because folks were uh, deeply impacted and they were like, what we've been doing just ain't going to work in this. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. I'm sorry that it took all these horrific things that happened for you to kind of like realize that. Um, And so we've had really significant um, support and embracing of the ideas and a lot of actions that I I could speak to where I've been surprised that some of the ideas have taken hold that I put out into the world and actually never thought anybody would do it. To be honest, I was just trying to inspire and spark imagination. The only pushback that I've really had have been from folks who are super conservative, um, you know, just funders who are just basically racist anyway right not ashamed of their racism (laughs) Mm -hmm. they're funding like right-wing racist type of coalitions and and work so that's been a really really small number of people but you you can google and see there have been articles written about me that i am eroding democracy and like who am i to tell rich people who have worked hard for the money what to do with their money um, and all of that, but that's been so small. In general, there's been so much uh, celebration of the work and um, both from folks who work inside the industry, both from um, people who hold wealth and absolutely from nonprofits and fundraisers who are like, yes, please, more of this. We need yeah. we've got to change this this dance that has been in place for way too long.
0: In Philadelphia, we have like, and I'm sure a lot of cities probably have this issue as well, or not an issue, but the same um, thing. We have a lot of nonprofits. I think that um, I saw some recent stats that there's like, you know, a thousand, there's so many nonprofits that like one, there's like a thousand people for every nonprofit. Right. Mm-hmm. um, And some people are serving like, oh, we're serving 20,000 people. But there's, you know, and it's really about capacity. Right. There's a lot of people who are just like, I need some going to start instead of just saying I'm going to build coalition and work with, over here. Mm-hmm. Um, Now, while some of those organizations probably are causing trauma and harm and some of them do need to just revamp or close down or whatever, for those people who feel like their needs are being met in their community. What do you say to them? Is it just go ahead and start? Is it educate and, and participate? Like what would be your feedback to them?
2: You mean specifically like the nonprofit leaders who are trying to engage funders? and or Not, Well,
0: sense. trying to engage funders because we don't have a lot of funders here. It's a very tight market here, but just, just mm-hmm. in the space, right? Because I think that a lot of, especially start up, a lot of startups, they'll say a lot of what you're saying, they're like, oh, they're racist. They're worrying about, you know, the white gaze and the evaluative methods that don't really apply. But it's also like, but what are you actually doing? There is a, there is a method to this in order to help community. Uh, yeah. So should you just go ahead and just do your thing and shout that everything is wrong? Or should there be a, a, a moment where you're like, you know what? I need to do more education and participate in what's already going on to really get what needs to get it right.
2: Yeah. You know, I what I often say to I get approached by a lot of startup nonprofits or people who want to start nonprofits. And what I always say is like, don't start.
1: <laughs> that's what we say too. Okay, that's so what we say yeah. too.
2: <laughs> and it, it's I'm like, why? Um I the it's it's there's there's something I appreciate the entrepreneurial spirit. Mm-hmm. I started a nonprofit um so I, I get it um but it is just really really hard y'all like it's it is really hard and unfortunately because of historical racism and all the things um you know the truth is you got to have money to get money right it is so hard to start from the ground up and no foundation is going to fund a new nonprofit who has no money Mm-mm. and um, there are so many other ways to fulfill your calling and passions beyond the traditional structure of a 51 c 3 so a few tips that I offer folks are um, first identify another nonprofit in your community who may be doing similar work mm-hmm. chances are it yeah. already exists right and yep. so um there are opportunities to plug and play maybe in an existing organization. Maybe you're bringing a new twist on the idea or something new, and they might welcome you to come in under the umbrella of their organization to, to incubate your work there, right? And so um, that is going to provide, you know, one more alignment, less competition, maybe some streamlining of services that are that, that are better for the community. Because you got to think about the community too, trying to run around, like, where do I get services? All these places, right? Um, The other thing that I highly recommend is to work through a fiscal sponsor. And so that's either in another nonprofit that's going to help you incubate potentially, um, or um, there are organizations that provide fiscal sponsor uh, support and overhead. And that is the path that I took because what I did not want to do is spend 99% of my time doing audits, financial statements, managing board. If you start a nonprofit, that's what people need to realize, right? Your job is not that fun stuff that you think you're going to do. That's not your your job. job. Your job becomes running a business that is about budgets, boards, all Mm -hmm. that stuff. And you can be, if you really just want to do the work work, there are places to plug in and do that. So that is that's my recommendation. Um, is just don't do it and find another way. We have to remember, you know, my point of view on nonprofits is that nonprofits are community-owned organizations. They are public organizations, mm-hmm. and so you should not start a new organization unless there really is a public. There are people around you who are like, we want this organization to exist, right? This right. is why we actually have in tax code what's called the public charity test. Where a private foundation really, many in many cases, won't even fund a new nonprofit for about five years because we want to see our, if you're getting local funding from people. Like, does the public want you to exist? If they do, they will fund you first. If they don't fund you, then maybe you shouldn't exist. And so um, if it is just you all by yourself in your room and you're like, I'm starting a nonprofit and you don't have people who are like, let's do this as a community, then maybe you should question that. Um, with my nonprofit, again, I had no plans to do it. There was a movement who came up around me and said, we're doing this thing. We starting this. <laughs> like, oh, I guess I'm starting this organization. Right. So we're
1: going with or without you, you just got to get on
2: board. <laughs> and if you don't really heed to that advice, uh, I, I mean, I'm sorry to say you probably have a really hard road ahead. It's going to be yeah. really, really difficult, but there are ways to lean into your calling and passion that just may not be that way.
1: I feel like, So we talk sometimes on the podcast about just like burning it all down and starting over because there are so many structures that are inequitable in place surrounding philanthropy, surrounding nonprofits, surrounding public support, all of the things. Um, I I imagine that that's where a lot of people creating their own nonprofits are coming from. Like, I see that it's not being done well. I see that my community is not being put first by this major nonprofit that's servicing my community. So I can see the challenge of someone who is very, you know, in the community, community driven, like wants to do things in a more equitable way for the people that are a part of their community.
0: You know, I had a woman tell me, I'm starting a breast cancer uh, nonprofit and I'm like, what are you doing? Oh, it's about breast cancer. I mean, I'm like, are you giving people breast cancer? Like, what are you, like, doing? What are you doing? Well, my mom had breast cancer and died from it. So I'm going to start an organization. And I'm like, but what does it do? Because you know, there's Susan G, there's right. all these other organizations. What does it do? like, well, I just want to start something. And I'm like, oh, there's a lot of that. There's a lot, there's more, yeah. more of that than people that are like, definitely trauma is being done.
1: I need right. to fix it. Definitely, and I feel like that's that's probably the difference, right? It's like people who are like, my mother's sister's brother's boyfriend had cancer. Now I want to support cancer, and then right. there's the people who are like, there's only one housing organization in my community, and they are incredibly racist and uh, aren't supporting the community the way they need to. So, right. I mean, I think even even if the one organization in town is incredibly racist and not doing things well. There's still the opportunity to partner. I mean, like obviously going to them and saying like, y'all are doing this wrong uh, is maybe not the right way to approach that organization. But I think a lot of people who work in nonprofits are there for the right reasons. And they're just they've got blinders. They've got biases that they maybe just don't pay attention to. I can't say that they're fully unaware of them, but. Like, I think that is kind of the bigger thing that holds people back from approaching um, nonprofits and saying like, hey, let's partner instead of starting their own thing. So if that's you, try to have the conversation anyway. Like they probably want to help and they just don't know they're being dumb and racist. That's that's the way I see it. I don't
2: know. It's a good, I, th- I hear your point though. I mean, because people of color have always created our own way when we've been left out. I mean, that's right. that's what we do. Um so i i hear that so it's definitely worth a conversation and i would say you may have to look outside your community maybe there's a statewide or a national organization that definitely. is in alignment or is led by people of color people of color run all kind of stuff these days too right, right. yeah um, so there's just just definitely know the ecosystem this is the same if you were starting a business in the for-profit sector yep. if you're going to an investor or to someone to get a loan to start a business you have to um, be able to demonstrate what the what the ecosystem looks like, right? If you're trying to open a subway franchise, you best better go in there and be able to show them what other subways are in town, mm-hmm. uh, what other restaurants are around, and why you should be opening a subway on this block that is going to make money. So, um, we have to have passion, but also, you know, I paid a lot of money to go to grad school, and the one thing I remember that is really important. <laughs> um, is finance drive strategy. Mm -hmm. And, um, without, without the money there, it is really, really hard y'all. And this system is built, uh, is rigged against us. And so we have to be really smart about around, you know, um, what can I do to, to kind of fill in that gap because you're going to need resources and money. And so it's not fair. It really is. It's it's really
1: not. It's like, you got to go to your oppressors to get what you need to to address the fact that you've been oppressed. It's it's really philanthropy is real messed up.
2: <laughs> it is it is really messed up.
1: It <laughs> it's really messed up. So it's changing.
2: And I'm okay. hopeful. But it's little changing. by little, little by little. But you're yeah, doing
1: yeah, great work. It. You're definitely pushing that's that needle right. forward.
0: So I we had a conversation maybe like last season. We were talking about the idea of what philanthropy is, right? And the idea that it's supposed to be the love for all mankind. And that's not really how it is in actuality and um a friend of mine michael o'brien from human nature said we need a new word because this isn't it this has been colonized it has been too traumatizing we need a new word do we need a new word or do we slow roll our path to what it should be
2: yeah i appreciate that you know i just learned something really interesting um I was at the um, Smithsonian National Museum of American History. I think that's the appropriate name. And um, someone there was just pointing out how the word philanthropy or philanthropist was co-opted. It actually used to mean what many of us wish that it it meant. Um, It used to mean liberation. And in fact, in Cincinnati, Ohio, there was a newspaper back in the day that was an abolitionist newspaper called The Mm -hmm. Philanthropist. i was like yeah i was learning i was like i didn't even know i was getting my philanthropy history (laughs) was really really interesting and so i that i have not been able to forget that so what happened was these conservative philanthropists in that day and i forget the dates but it was back you know early civil rights movement um co-opted that word and you know made it more about the wealthy white men and sort of the institutional kind of what comes to mind today for a lot of people when they hear the word philanthropist. So I'm kind of in favor of reclaiming the word to really be mm. about liberation again, because if we come up with a new word, it's just going to be co-opted. Be
0: co-opted. You know? yeah. So
2: we can chase ourselves around in circles with words, but I think that we just re- redefine and model what philanthropy, what, and, and what, the way I talk about my work, this is not radical. This is modern philanthropy. If you don't do it this way, then you are behind the times of antiquated. So we, we, uh, i think we i'm in favor of of reclaiming what we want philanthropy to be
0: that's awesome I behind that yeah i can't do good so five years you got a report coming out any any thoughts on what the next five years plus has for mm-hmm. decolonizing wealth and for edgar villanueva Good
2: question yeah like, question y'all Woo. um We um a a little bit, a little bit of thinking. We have had, um, we've been so fortunate, um, so many doors to open, and it's it really. I feel like at this moment we're standing in front of like twenty doors, and it's like which door do we go through? Mm -hmm. Um, I'm so blessed to have um, an amazing team of folks who have joined me to help me figure a lot of that out. Um, in the new year, we're actually going to take um, what. I hope to be is like a little bit of a pause to to reflect more and to build out a plan for the next five years. I keep seeing stuff being added to the calendar. So I'm like, (laughs) when are we come on (laughs) now? It's just a Uh, it's
0: just a deep breath pause. It's not a real pause. (laughs) Exactly. We
2: need some time to think, but I can tell you a couple things that that I feel like are, are really opening up for us. Um, We have really begun to expand our work outside the US, which is really exciting. Um, We're doing a lot of work in the UK. Uh, We've been meeting and doing some work in Mexico, Brazil. And so I'm really excited. We have a report coming out by the end of this year on decolonizing global philanthropy. Um, We engaged um, hundreds of leaders from the global south to ask them the question, what do they want to see different about philanthropy? And so we're ready to just, you know, America in a lot of ways sets the tone for this industry. And um, lots of countries have looked to the U.S. for how to build out their sector. And we're like, there's a different way. And we've had an impact here. And there's a lot of interest in, in, you know, what they should do differently. So global uh, is one. Um, We're increasingly doing work outside of philanthropy, which I also love. Philanthropy is massive as y'all know and really influences so many other sectors Um, but sort of our reparative philanthropy framework which is like the the foundation of what we teach and preach and how we're trying to shift this industry is being um, used and adopted by a lot of different institutions from you know um, museums to corporations um, work in the entertainment industry we want everybody to right their wrongs and to wow. to get in the right relationship. Any place where there is money, wealth, and power concentrated, we're trying to show up. We've been doing more um in the fashion industry, um just like popping up. How y'all going to decolonize this, right? <laughs> so, um, I'm really excited to to further explore how to how to you know the multiplier effect of what we've been able to do in this industry and other places, um. The other thing I will say, just in terms of our working community, I'm really proud of our work around reparations. Um, We launched uh, an initiative, you know, some three years ago um, or four years ago to create the first national fund to support reparations for Black people in this country Mm -hmm. at a time when this industry would not even say that word, right? And they were looking at me like I had lost it. Mm-hmm. Um, we started this fund and we've been organizing foundations to support this movement. Um, uh, we have moved um over four million. We actually had a meeting wow. today. We're about to approve another three million. So that'll be wow, a
0: total dollars
2: to this movement. And then we had this really exciting conference in June. It was the first national reparations conference of its kind where we brought together the movement but also folks from entertainment and politicians and community leaders. We had over 40 foundations who came to this conference. Wow. Like hmm. This was the, the one people.
0: in Atlanta, right?
2: The one in Atlanta. Yeah. And so we were really filling ourselves and we announced- a- <laughs> <laughs> As you should
1: have been.
0: Do it, right, right.
2: We announced there a big $20 million commitment to this movement. And so we are just deeply passionate about truth and healing and reparations and- so I'm excited to see the next five years. I hope that we see reparations realized. We've seen many victories along the way, locally and in states, um, lots of progress around it. And it's been just a joy to see up close and personal the strength of this movement, and all the phenomenal folks that we get to support. And we're doing work similarly in indigenous communities. Um, we launched a new fund called the National Treat and Healing Fund Um, That is supporting um, movement building that will support is brand new. We haven't made grants yet. Uh, It will support um, organizing and movement building around getting a a federal uh, TRC, a Truth and Reconciliation Commission in place and just provide resources to all the partners. So we're in an era of truth and healing y'all, and we're going to carry that forward into the next five years and push back on this resistance in this country to ban books and to erase our history, mm-hmm. because we know the only way forward is to really look back and to right. take ownership and uh, of what has happened uh, so that we can heal and move on. So that's a little bit of what I know is to come. Um, but, yeah, we'll see what happens.
1: You just really casually <laughs> dropped like four <laughs> massive things like
2: massive i'm like what is my sabbatical happening in there <laughs> we'll see. soon
1: hopefully
0: <laughs> definitely oh this is this has been amazing um
1: yeah as much I, as we want to keep talking
0: well i want to yeah we want to respect uh your time and our listeners our listeners time um but thank you this has been so insightful and re-energizing you know i I attended the healing summit. Um, yeah, this, this space is, is, is a lot sometimes. So I, I, I appreciated that. And even just having this conversation and just knowing that you have so much support behind you in the work and you're not getting a lot of pushback, um, gives me hope that like you're paving the way for us coming behind you to not have to bang our heads so much when we're, when we're trying to do this work. So thank you.
1: Yeah. Agreed. I have nothing more to add. You just summed that up perfectly.
0: Thank you you again for for being here. Um, Thank you once again to our listeners for joining us. And if you didn't know, now you know this has been Beyond Philanthropy. Thanks, guys.
2: Thank you.